Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there and welcome to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113 is the number if you'd like to join the conversation. I think we're going to start right out today with um, just a quick reminder for you that uh, if if you are aware of what is going on with Jeanette Finnicum, the fact that she is in Portland today, um, in the belly of the beast, so to speak, she is in the federal court as uh, there is a hearing going on. Um, they're hearing oral arguments about the government's uh, motion to dismiss her wrongful death lawsuit. And so if you are a person who, first of all, is aware of what's going on there, and uh, secondly, if you're a person of faith, this would be about the best possible time to exercise some of that faith on Jeanette's behalf and her family's behalf. Pray that uh, her lawyer, Morgan Philpot, you know, will be guided in his words and, and persuasive in his arguments. Um, you know, pray that the hearts of, of those judges or the judge who sits in that courtroom will be softened and be receptive to truth. Some people may say, well, God has no business in a courtroom like that. And, you know, there's a time I would have felt that way myself. But I think back to when Judge Gloria Navarro dismissed with prejudice the case against the Bundys. And, you know, it shocked me as much as I'm sure it would shock you to hear this, but God was in that courtroom. You could feel God's spirit in that courtroom as she announced that those charges were dismissed with prejudice as she dressed down the prosecution for the insult and injury that they did to justice. And there were a lot of people in that courtroom who I know had their heads bowed, you know, praying that that would be the outcome. Likewise, if you if you would exercise your faith on behalf of Jeanette, I don't know when she'll have updates coming out, but it's it's a big deal. It's a big day. Um, Eighty four pages, I believe, is is how long the, the government's motion to dismiss is. I don't want to see that go away. I want it, I want justice done. I want someone to be held accountable. I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in this as well. Eight zero one three three one eighty one thirteen. Let's go right to the phone. Hello there. Hi, Brian. Great to be on your show. I don't know if you're carrying on any radio stations, but it's great to be on your show here. Yeah, we're on K-Talk right now. Oh, okay. Then it is great to be on the radio with you. Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, uh, before I get into my main topic, I want to thank you for uh, taking me to the presentation on Friday. Uh, Jeanette is a fine woman. I didn't get to hear the DVD well because the room was echoey, but I can tell you Jeanette is a fine person, and I'll be praying for her. Yeah, it's, you know, I know it's easy for people to say, well, you know, this is all stuff that uh, yeah, it might be interesting, but it didn't really affect me. But when you hear the story and, and you hear some of the context that sadly has been missing from the mainstream narrative, it's so clear that, that a tremendous injustice has taken place here. And, and suddenly it becomes important to me. I want to see justice done. That's all. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I remember when Cliven Bundy had his issue with the government, you said it best. You may not like Cliven, or you may think that he should have paid his grazing fees, but it goes beyond that. And this is when I was just starting to learn about it, and I thought, well, yeah, look at what the government did to Randy Weaver and what they did to David Koresh. Yeah, it's bigger than that. 
Um, but I do want to talk about BYU. You and I may have a slight disagreement on this, but hear me out. I think BYU did uh, unknowingly did the LGBT community a great disservice uh, because they came out and said sexual relationships between a man and a woman is against church doctrine and against BYU honor code. I'm paraphrasing. That's essentially what they said. Well, then you had these students who were kissing in front of the statue, the Brigham Young statue, um, who were gays, gay and lesbian. One was even a bisexual person. Then they came out on Wednesday and said, oh, homosexuality is against the honor code. I'm paraphrasing. They should have said that from the very beginning because we're in a day and age where we have to define everything, it seems, and I actually attribute President Clinton to that. What do you think? Oh, I, I think you may have a point here. I, I don't know why BYU, you know, altered the honor code. And, and I'm not even sure the extent. I haven't read the honor code, so I, I can't say that I'm even offering an informed opinion. My understanding is that they, they removed a section that specifically seemed to, to target homosexual behavior, but uh, that was taken or interpreted by apparently some of the students as, well, then, you know, we're free to have a romantic, maybe absent sexual uh, activity relationship. We can hold hands. We can date. We can kiss. We can cuddle, you know, but uh, it's, it's not going to be against the, the honor code. And so I think they, they heard something they thought they wanted to hear and ran with it. And then were corrected when this clarification came out two weeks later saying, no, 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 this is not suggesting that, yeah, this is a good thing. And now, you know, the church is down with it. It's just uh, that apparently they weren't emphasizing, you know, we'll kick you out. You know, if we see two girls holding hands, that may not be a, a punishable honor code offense. That was my understanding. And if I'm wrong on this, you know, somebody please correct me. Well, I think uh, what what really bothers me about this whole thing, and I am an active member of the LDS Church, like yourself, but I really am bothered by the fact that the LDS Church has given so much money to these LGBT organizations. It bothers me that they let same-sex couples dance now to, for some ballroom competition. You know, this is a slippery slope. To accepting gay marriage, uh, it, it bothers me. So let me let me just uh, get some clarification here from you. Then um, you're not necessarily you're you're not on board with um, with the church accepting gay marriage. No. Okay. But it, it seems like they're slipping down this slippery slope, and then you know the church is taking two steps forward, two steps back. Well, we'll donate to these uh, LGBT groups. Uh, oh, well, let same-sex couples dance for this ballroom competition. Oh, uh, we're gonna we're 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 not we're gonna be so clear on uh, same-sex couples showing affection at BYU. Oh, oh, we got to change the policy. What is it? For what it's, it's like, they're having some identity crisis. For what it's worth, I think that uh, not only the LDS Church but other churches too that still maintain. Look, the standard is marriage is between a man and a woman. God expects. Um, self-control before marriage. He expects perfect fidelity after marriage. I think that they're they're kind of in a no-win situation, and here's why. Because the people who are pushing the LGBT agenda, 
which, by the way, is not every LGBT person. It's just the activists are pushing and they do this through victimhood. And that's exactly what these kids right now at BYU. I don't feel safe going to school here. I just feel like I feel like I've been outed. I have a target on my back. And and, you know, they're, they're feeling like they're not being validated. Therefore, they're victims. Now, I think the church has made some very, um, very strong overtures towards trying to help LGBT members understand that, look, we're not telling you that there's no place for you here, but we are telling you there are still standards of behavior that have to apply. They, they're consistent. They've never changed as far as God's plans. And, you know, the, the people who are caught up in victimhood don't want to hear that. They, they want that acceptance and things have got to change. And, and they think apparently by holding enough rallies or waving enough rainbow flags, that's how it's going to change, you know, the, the essential doctrines. Well, what do you think is going to happen? There, uh, BYU, <clears throat> there's protests this weekend at the Wilkinson Center, and I understand at 3 o'clock there's, a, uh, for those of you in a different time zone, less than an hour from now, there's going to be a march at the church office building from 3 to 5. What do you think, what do you think this will all end up as? What do you think the church is going to do about it? I, I think they're going to do just what they have done before, and that is just emphasize, look, you are welcome within the, the, the walls of our church anytime, but there are still standards that we believe um, line up with the definition of right and wrong. I mean, as this, I'm paraphrasing what I've heard church leaders say before, which is it's not our call to change the doctrine. We're not the ones who gave it. You know, they, they look to, you know, God as the giver of those truths. Well, well let me ask you this, um, because a lot of people say, and I've heard this argument, Oh, a lot of people didn't think blacks would get the priesthood. Now they have it, so LGBT, you know, same-sex marriages will be accepted. Well, we're talking. What, you, what would you say to? We're talking the difference between someone's innate, um, you know, biological makeup, you know, their their skin color, their ethnicity versus behavior, and behavior, regardless of what anybody says, can be controlled. We all have choices to make as far as our behavior. Oh, absolutely. I'm definitely, uh, I'm not going to lie, I've struggled with the law of chastity. I, I've uh, repented. I'm still not perfect at it, but uh, I'm working on it. Uh, Kevin, we got to break away here. I, I appreciate yeah. you raising this issue, and thanks again for the call. Thanks for going to the event last week, too. Sure. All right, we'll come back. We'll, we'll pick up some more callers. I don't know. I think the the culture war is bleeding over into many other institutions in society, churches being one of those institutions where this is being fought. That's just my opinion, and you're welcome to it. And welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Our number is 801-331-8113. Let's get right back to the telephone. I've got Sam on the line from Missouri. Hi, Sam. Hey. Hey, good to talk to you as always. And um, I wanted to call in and follow up on what Kevin was saying a while ago, and he called in. We were just coming back from town and uh, happened to hear him call in. And I have to agree with Kevin wholeheartedly because here, here's the thing that uh, people have got to remember out of all this, and this is the problem. I've always said... Churches are like the Republican Party versus the Democrats. They will change, and they will go the way of compromise, just like the Republicans do. They always give up. That's why there's hardly no difference between the parties anymore. It's like the basically what you have here is 
you're going to get the same result, but do you want to go to hell at, t- at uh, 80 miles an hour or you want to go to hell at 100 miles an hour is the only difference in this change environment in which we live in. It was Karl Marx who made the statement that religion is the opiate of the people. Adolf Hitler used that very, very well in the days of Nazi Germany, uh, and this is why the churches uh, stood back and enabled a lot of the stuff that went down there, and it seems to be the problem everywhere uh, where compromise is allowed. And basically where I come from on this, and it doesn't matter if it's LDS or whatever, I'm not a member of LDS, but I, uh, but I, am, a, I am a Christian, and I, uh, I respect any church that upholds standards, that upholds Iraq, and, uh, in other words, from which they will not move. And the problem is I see chinks in the armor in a lot of the churches. Um, I mean, the same thing's going on in the uh, Southern Baptist Association. There are people trying to make an attempt at bringing that back to where it once was versus where it's going. The Catholics made the same change, and this is when we started having problems with the with the priests and the doing the pedophilia and various other things that were going on. The question is, where does this stop? We accept, first we accept homosexuality and the uh, uh, LGBT community and all this kind of stuff. Then what do we do next when the North American Man-Boy Love Association comes in? Do we accept them too? Right. Well, you know... (sighs) I'm 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 hearkening back to my understanding of of where political correctness or cultural Marxism comes from. And it goes back to the Frankfurt School and back to Antonio Gramsci, among others, who who laid out the plan for, look, this is how we will bring these institutions under our control. We can take it out of the economic realm. We can take Marxism out of the political realm, put it into the cultural realm. And the way you do that is you take the institutions down one by one. And church yep. and family and business and community and media and academia are all other institutions. And you can just ask yourself, well, how far have they got in each one of those institutions? Most of them, they've gotten pretty far. Church and family oh, yeah. are really like the last two stubborn holdouts. Oh, you're right. You're absolutely right. And But see, this is the thing I'm saying. We've got to be careful that as believers, and I'm saying believers as a whole, you know, we may have certain disagreements versus agreements on individual uh, ideology or whatever in some certain parts of uh, biblical doctrine. But at the, but the point of the matter is, basically the way I had it described to me one time, at least in a church that I was attending, and that may be, it may be an accurate statement, I don't know, but it sounded good anyway, and that is the church is a hospital for sinners, okay? You wouldn't go to a doctor, I wouldn't anyway, if the doctor was giving me inferior results and all I did was just kept going down the pipeline toward ill health, okay, then why would I go to a church when in the end that same church is just going to allow me to continue down the same path I was going? And even if a church tried to say, well, we have standards, and they welcome these people in, and they say, well, okay, we welcome you in, but we have standards. Well, first you welcome them in, then these people will eventually, particularly the activists among them, they will fight to obtain leadership positions in that church, and then eventually that church will succumb. It just depends on do they have to fight their way through or do they have to uh, just, you know, whatever. But the point of the matter is is that there are certain sectors of these communities, um, you know, LBGT and all this kind of stuff, who are not satisfied with just being welcome in. They don't want really what that church has to offer. They want to come in, they want to infiltrate that body, and they want to take that body down. And that's the thing that we have to keep in mind, because if we're going to compromise, then what's the point of even going to a church? You may as well not even go. You may as well just do your thing out in the world and just go along, get along, and that's the end of it. Right. Yeah, it's... 
We live in interesting times. I don't. You don't need me to tell you that. Uh, things are getting crazier by the day, and I think it stands to figure that uh, you know we're we're going to see a lot of division, even within churches and and other. Uh, foundational institutions that people have looked to for guidance and for light and truth, uh, you're going to see a lot more of this. And I think that's it's just consistent with the times that we live in. And and do I dare say this? There's going to be a separating of the wheat and the chaff. Yeah, and I think in the end, I think what you're going to see, Brian, there will be a remnant. And I think that remnant is going to be different than most people think. I think that remnant is going to be across several different denominations. It won't be just uh, LDS. It won't be just Baptist. It'll be a remnant from across the board, but it'll be a remnant who stands on the rock and they won't move. I hear you, and I agree. That's all I got. Okay, Sam, thank you so much for the call. 801-331-8113. I do have a couple of other topics I wouldn't mind touching on. Um, I kind of was on a little bit of a a kick today. Uh, I found some really great short essays. Donald Bordreau Boudreaux, rather, has one of the best that I've seen in a while. And I don't know if you ever think about this, but what's the most important two-letter word in the English language? You know the word I'm going for. It's no. In fact, I remember years ago hearing a, a, a respected leader in my church talk about how one of the problems that we have with kids is they're suffering from a vitamin no deficiency. And I thought, well, that's kind of a clever way to put it. Listen to what uh, Donald Boudreaux has to say about this incredible word, and the power that it can have in our own lives. He says, A civilizing feature of any society is the right to say no. Indeed, societies can be usefully ranked from good to bad according to the respect that they accord to individuals' rights to say no to those who would take their property. Now, the the importance of being able to say no and to have that statement heeded is emphasized by the hashtag MeToo movement. Everyone is ethically entitled to refuse offers of sexual encounters And this entitlement should be recognized by law. But he says the importance of the right to say no extends far beyond the narrow domains in which it wins the approval of political progressives. The right to say no is or ought to be a very broad one. He says this right is essential not only to individual autonomy, but also to economic prosperity. Consider, for instance, the value of the right to say no in everyday economic affairs. Because no merchant can compel you to make you purchase whatever he's selling. That is, because you can say no to any offer he makes. For that merchant to profit by selling to you, he must make you an offer that improves your well-being. Your right to say no prevents that merchant from harming you and incites him to craft a bargain that's mutually beneficial. Likewise, you as a buyer can't force the merchant to sell to you. The merchant also has a right to say no, and so for you, to, for you to gain by dealing with the merchant, you must offer to pay an amount that he finds worthwhile. And he says, with everyone in markets equipped with the right to say no, people agree only to those exchanges that they believe make them better off. Market exchanges are win-win. This is one reason, this fact rather, is one reason why the freer our markets, the faster is economic growth. The right to say no also features a beautiful component of equality. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, with his vast fortune, must nevertheless persuade each of his customers to deal with him. Because they can refuse his offers, he must find ways to make them better off if he's to profit from having them as customers. Now, it's true that in Bezos' case, his having to persuade each and every person with whom he deals to say yes to his offers resulted in his monetary wealth growing disproportionately large, compared to that of almost everyone else. But so what? 
individuals' right to say no motivated Bezos to figure out ways to entice people to say yes to do business with him. The fact that in consequence, Bezos became one of the world's wealthiest people only means that he was especially successful at persuading people to say yes. And Donald Boudreaux says, shouldn't we applaud rather than bemoan or begrudge such success? Interesting. See, matters are, are quite the different in politics. Government's nature is to threaten force to do whatever it wants. And because government can force each person to do its bidding, no one has a right to tell it no. There is therefore no good reason to expect that the outcomes of political process, processes will be widespread human betterment. Boy, does that ring true. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. If you'd like to join the conversation. I found another marvelous little essay from Jacob Hornberger. And again, I'm just going to, I'm going to throw some, uh, well, I'm going to throw some shameless, uh, promotion his way. The Future of Freedom Foundation has been such a great resource for me for so many years, because more than just Jacob alone, there are so many great uh, commentators, Richard M. Ebling, Lawrence uh, W. Vance, and and a host of others. They also pick up a number of different uh, articles from all over. And it's just, it shows up in my mailbox six days a week. It's there in my email and always great food for thought. These are not all academic papers. Some of them are quite academic and, you know, take a, take a little bit of scholarly study time. Others are quite uh, quick to read and to the point. This one is one of the latter. It's an article titled Economic Liberty and Consumer Sovereignty. And since we were just talking about how, you know, in, in the case of, uh, of Jeff Bezos, you know, the, the founder of Amazon.com, it's the fact that people can say no but they still choose to do business with him. That shows you that he's a very successful guy. As Donald Boudreaux points out, although Bezos today is magnificently rich in the economic market, his power to compel people to do business with him remains equal to that of the poorest immigrant motel maid. Neither person has any such power. That poor motel maid can say no to any offer from the tycoon Bezos that she believes will not, <laughs> excuse me, improve her well-being meaning Bezos has no power over her. Now, as he pointed out, government, on the other hand, pretty much everything that government does comes with a an enforcement mechanism. And I don't know why. People get angry. Some people get really offended. And oh, You can't say that's not fair when you say there is no law, no rule, no statute, no ordinance so small that government will not kill you in order to enforce it. And the people who get their back up about that, and eh, you can't say that, that's unfair, are not thinking things through to their logical end. Because every government rule is backed by force. And they may not want to see it. But the whole thing is, you know, the, 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 the thing we're supposed to believe is that there should be a group of men who should be able to tell us what to do and hurt us if we don't do it. This is right. 
This is how it should be. They should be able to take our money and put it to the uses that they think are best. And if we don't agree with it, they should be able to hurt us. And this is right. And they should be able to take our children and force them to fight the children of their competitors. And this is right. See, when you put them in those terms, I know it doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room. It doesn't it doesn't uh, leave some candy coating for people to go, yeah, but at least this part's good. It kind of strips it right down to, wow. If it was anything other than government, if it was any private individual trying to do those kind of things, we'd be referring to them as brigands. But for some reason, when it's done with official proper ceremonies and, you know, uh, after the democratic process... Why? We're able to suspend our disbelief and we're able to just say, well, it must be legitimate. And and worse, we have to all go along with it. So I know I've just bumped up against the uh, limits of some people's mental universes by by saying this. So I apologize. It causes discomfort. And it did for me. The first few times that I had to try to consider such things, it was like, no, I want to find a reason to believe. And I would get angry. When someone confronted me with something that I did not want to see. Well, I'm not telling you you have to believe it. But I put it out there in the hopes that uh, maybe at some point when it's appropriate to you, you'll be willing to pick it up and examine it and say, wow. This is not what I thought I was, was believing all along. And I say that as someone who's been through that process and is still going through that process in many ways. Truth isn't always a sweet and pleasant thing. It can be kind of painful. Let me share some pretty sweet one with some sweet truth with you, though. This is from Jacob Hornberger. Economic liberty and consumer sovereignty. You have more power than you think. He says in a genuinely free society, people have the right to engage in any occupation, profession or vocation without having to seek a permit, license or other government permission. The idea is that economic liberty is a fundamental, God-given right, one that government is prohibited from controlling or interfering with. As the Declaration of Independence points out, it is the purpose of government to protect, not infringe, the exercise of fundamental rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Economic liberty, however, does not guarantee that people who choose a certain occupation are going to be successful. And that's because in a genuinely free society, it's the consumer, not the state, who decides who's going to be successful and who isn't. So if a consumer or rather a supplier of goods or services satisfies consumers by providing products that they like and are willing to pay for, that supplier will stay in business and prosper. Now, if a supplier fails to satisfy consumers, he'll lose sales and possibly even go out of business. And Jacob Hornberger says consumers, generally speaking, are fickle and ruthless. Even though they may have done business with a particular company for years, if someone comes along offering a better product at a lower price, most of them won't hesitate to shift their buying to the new seller. Thus, in a genuine free market, the pressure on businesses is constant and relentless. Keep satisfying consumers by providing them with goods and services they want and are willing to pay for or go out of business. Now, he says some people argue that government should forcibly confiscate and redistribute wealth. In a genuinely free, in a genuinely free market economy, consumer sovereignty does that. And here's the kicker. It's all voluntary. 
A company can have 90% of the market only to lose it quickly by failing to satisfy customers. That's reflected by the fact that most of the top 10 Fortune 500 companies in 1970 are no longer on that list. Liberty entails removing state sovereignty over economic activities and replacing it with consumer sovereignty. In a free society, government's role is limited to protecting people from those who initiate force or fraud against others. That's it. Plain and simple. What do you think about that? I mean, he made it simple enough that even I can get it. I'm nodding my head. I'm like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Does it make sense to you? 801-331-8113. And by the way, if you, if you disagree, that's fine. Call up and let's have that discussion. I see a lot of misconceptions about what is the free market and can we trust the free market and, you know, why don't we get government involved and at least regulate the free market so that we know everything is safe. And it's, it's sad to me because I think a lot of people gravitate toward that position out of a sense of, look, I just want to make sure that people are being fair and that things are safe and that nobody's out there, you know, peddling toasters that will explode and kill us, you know, while we're trying to use them. But the free market has every incentive to provide those same protections. And without the coercion and the overhead and some of the, the obstacles that government brings to the table when it decides to implement them. Let's go to the phone. Caller, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian, this is Daniel from Behind Enemy Lines in FEMA Region 9. Daniel, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Fantastic. Hey, I've got a couple questions for you. Okay, ask away. Under what moral principle may any program or organization be funded via extortion? Ask me that one more time. I want to make sure I'm understanding. Okay. Under what moral principle may any program or organization be funded by extortion? I don't think there is a moral principle. Okay. What is the difference between taxation and extortion? One of them dresses up in officialdom and pronounces itself righteous, and the other one just simply tells you, pay up or we break your knees. Okay. Therefore, government is funded by an immoral action, correct? Yes, if it is not a voluntary action. Well, taxation by definition is not voluntary. Okay, it would be a there, there, they call it donations if it was voluntary. There might be there might be a small exception here, though, and I would say in the case of like excise taxes, um, you know, consumer taxes. In other words, you don't want to pay the tax on whiskey. Don't buy whiskey. I still don't agree with no, the idea that's, that, that it's still not voluntary. It, it just because it's whiskey doesn't make the tax voluntary. All I'm saying is, is, if you don't want to pay the tax, though, you don't have to do. The, the you don't have to buy the particular commodity. I still I still agree with you in principle. It's still government saying, well, we want that money. So if anybody does yeah. want this, well, then we're taking it. Yeah, exactly. So therefore, uh, even using biblical principles, you can't get grapes from a thorn bush. In other words, if you have an immoral organization, you're not going to get a moral result from it except maybe occasionally by accident, and I, I would even argue against that. Okay. No, I, I wouldn't, so, I wouldn't so, disagree. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm saying basically is anytime government is involved, 
you're going to have the problems that your whole show is about. Now, let me throw out another example. Actually, uh, hang on just a second. Daniel, we're we're coming up up on our break here. If you can hang with me, let's pick this up just the other side of these messages. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be right back. All right, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I've got Daniel on the line from FEMA FEMA Region 9, behind enemy lines, so to speak. All right, let's let's continue on with with this discussion. And and you're making a pretty solid case here that uh, taxation is theft. It doesn't become moral just because government does it. Can I ask you though? Do governments need taxes in order to operate? I would say no. They could operate, but they would not. You might not even call them governments anymore because the whole problem with having a government. You talk about freedom under government. That's to me, an oxymoron, because government, by definition, controls people by force. It's not voluntarily added in. You can't say no, as you said earlier in your in your program. And that's true of the excise taxes as well. I had a chance to think about that, is that um, you wouldn't need a BATF um, military outfit, military equipped outfit to collect the taxes if they were voluntary. Very true. Yep, I agree. The question I have, too, about your earlier story, is BYU, do they accept any tax funding? I think think they're completely a private university. Okay, because if they accept any tax money, in other words, extortion funds, then I would say that anyone who's forced to pay for it by a moral principle, would have have to have access to whatever service you want to define the university as providing. If not, if it's totally voluntary and, and uh, mutually agreed upon, then I'd say they can exclude whoever they want. Okay. No, fair, fair enough. Yeah, and I, I think in the case of BYU, they're well within their rights to set the standards for their school because of that. Um, but boy, it sure makes you wonder about the other tax-funded universities and schools. Mm-hmm. You know, is it any surprise, or would it should it surprise anybody that uh, those those institutions that are funded by tax dollars taken from the people somehow always seem to represent a worldview that's very favorable to you know whomever is in charge? Exactly. Yeah, they're very statist by nature because that's the nipple that they suck on. Vivid, but yes. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I'm sorry if I threw you <laughs> no, off. No, you're good. You're good. <laughs> that doesn't happen often on your show. You're very, You have a very good delivery. I really enjoy listening to you. So so let me ask you this, Daniel, because I know you think about these things. What's, what's the best thing that you and I can do, well, in your I opinion? Think, first of all, what you're already doing is spreading the word that we are basically slaves. As, uh, as uh, Wilhelm Goethe said, none are so hopelessly enslaved as those who falsely believe they're free. And I think getting people to understand that it is government that enslaves us, not big corporations, you know, except maybe by their association with government, but it's still the guns of government and the psychos we call politicians that are enslaving us. And as people realize that, 
they start to see that there already exists, as I pointed out to you before, I believe, many, many voluntary ways of doing the exact same things that government pretends to do for us. Yep. Well, I know that uh, it, it's, it blows people's minds to realize that for the first, oh, uh, shoot, 120 years or 130 years of our nation's existence, they didn't, they didn't tax people. People who earned money kept what they earned, and there was no direct accountability to government for what you earned. You know, the, the 16th Amendment hadn't happened. I think Lincoln imposed an income tax briefly during the war between the states, but the Supreme Court smacked it down as soon as that was over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's amazing, too, because that must have been very tempting to keep that in, in force. It's probably the only example I can think of of a temporary tax. Yeah. Yeah, here we've been going for what now, 107 years with the uh, the income tax and the, under the 16th Amendment, and it's not getting any better. It's just getting worse and worse. Yeah. And that's just the most visible tax. I mean, there are so many layers and levels of taxation by all governments that I'd be surprised if we we're able to keep more than about 20% of what we earn. Yeah. The, once you start digging and start to see all the different layers, it becomes pretty staggering. And and then you get the yeah. states, you know, I, and I'm sorry, I'm a little bit frustrated with the Governor Herbert in Utah uh, for being so eager. We've got to tax anything you buy on the Internet. And that all that all kicked in. I understand there was the Supreme Court decision last year that that to kind of open the door to this. But, oh, that frustrates me. It makes me want to buy things secondhand where possible or to to do what right. I can to circumvent those taxes. Right. And that's what uh, politicians uh being the psychos that they are, they don't realize that we're at least as smart as they are, probably smarter because we're not, we don't have the burden of being insane. And therefore, uh, we can think of ways around what, whatever they impose. And usually there are loopholes imposed anyway because they want ways around their own laws. Oh, absolutely. So we can just follow their lead. So I think, and the reason I call them psychos is to me, who else wants to control other people by threats of deadly force? Who but a psycho? No, fair now, enough. I've got one one thing I'd like to slip in here, and then I'll let you you know let you take other callers. But um, I want I want to start a movement to call Utah Mid California because <laughs> just what you mentioned about your governor, everything that California does, which I, of course I detest. Um, other other states are following suit, and Utah seems nipping at our heels at every turn. No, I can't. I can't disagree with you. We've got a very bad case of me too. You know, we want to. We yeah. want to be like the big kids. Yeah, yeah. All a politician wants is everything you have, and even if once they gain that, it's not enough. They have to. They have to steal from the future by by a borrowing. Very true. My friend, thank you so much for calling in. Okay, thank you, Brian. All right. 801-331-8113. We've got a couple of minutes left here. I had an article that I wanted to share on natural law. I will link this in the show notes. Um, Natural law is one of those things that, that, uh, well, you you talk about natural law in front of an attorney, depending on the attorney, they're going to get this look on their face like, yeah, you you want to tell me chapter and verse where I can find that? What volume of law will I find that in? Black's Law Dictionary. Actually, Black's Law Dictionary probably would talk about it quite a bit. But there's this terrific article about natural law, fictions, and context. 
And just a quick highlight of a couple of the issues here. Natural law is not a topic for debate in the sense that it governs everything in the real world. It applies in all events. You can't override it. You can't forestall it. In the literature of freedom, you might encounter a question about natural law that may infer that its existence is a matter of agreement or disagreement, or you'll see a phrase like, well, he was a foremost proponent of natural law. And from that, you might think, well, natural law then requires someone to be advocating for it. And in some cases, you might draw the faulty conclusion that if you don't like the consequences of natural law, well, then you can ignore it. But the author here says natural law is not a menu item. It always applies, like it or not. The example that most of us could relate to would be the law of gravity, which must always be considered. Yes, technicians can simulate zero gravity, but only within the framework of gravity. Sure, random events can make it temporarily seem like gravity has taken a holiday, but that's only defined within the precise characteristics of gravity. But think of this. Gravity exists in every venue at all times in the universe. By the same token, natural law underlies everything, whether we acknowledge it or not. And there are a lot of people who will try to to make fiction out of natural law, artificially combining facts of natural law and manufacturing something to make it make sense. Sorry, that's fiction. The author here points out no one can know everything, most simply because there is no orderly structure or place for all information. So all of us have to extrapolate and interpolate among knowns and likelihoods in order to make rational guesses about the unknowns. Remember Donald Rumsfeld famously telling us there are knowns, known unknowns, and known or unknown unknowns. The point here is that everything should be viewed within an appropriate context. First, the context which you build through experience with previously observed natural phenomena and the fictions that you provide for getting the most realistic perception of reality. And the second context comes from the outside. What kind of freight has been attached due to the self-interest of others? Also, we must consider whether the self-interest has been introduced by a natural desire for well-being or a more sinister impulsion by greed, bias toward exploitation, ignorance, stupidity, and or aggression. The point here is we're often misled about context. Inquiries are often deflected by claiming a lack of faith between what's said and what isn't said. Such cherry-picking can be either deceitful or innocent, but you got to be able to evaluate the completeness of the contextual information. I'll have a link to this as well. It's worth a read and may, may take you down another entirely different rabbit hole. Huh, not a bad way to spend the weekend.